It's time for the Turfgrass Zealot Audiocast. From the worldwide command center of intergalactic turf heads, it's the Turfgrass Zealot Audiocast. Only on Turfnet Radio. With the chief turfhead, the guru of fescue, the Alatolla of iron, Mr. Dave Wilbur. There's only one zealot, only on Turfnet Radio. Hello, turfheads. Hey, turf monkeys, it's me. It's Dave Wilbur. And welcome to episode number, what is this? Number 32 of the Turf Grass Zealot Project. I'm Dave Wilbur, consulting agronomist, um, turf grass futurist, um, <laughs> you name it. I'm wearing all the hats these days. Um, but right now I'm your host. And I'm thankful to be that host. I'm thankful to be part of the TurfNet organization who continues to uh, support me uh, in my absences and in my presences both. So I took a little sabbatical from all this to uh, regain my composure, to regain my creativity. I felt like that I was on the verge of putting out crap. I felt like I was uh, trying to tick some boxes that didn't necessarily need to be ticked. And um, I consulted with some very close friends and some people that I love. And I said, you know, what's uh, what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? All that sort of stuff. And so that's what that's all about. So I appreciate you guys waiting for this episode. Um, you know, to me, not a big deal to get it right. Like, let's get it right. Let's freaking get it right. Hey, Matt, are you stoked? <laughs> it's springtime 2018. It, I mean, it's it's about to light off. It's about to light off, man. I, I, I love, I actually really love this time of year. I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm recording this toward the end of March and it's my birthday in a couple days, right? And there was always this thing where it's like, you know, like a lot of times we talk about the business, you know, April through October and, and depending on which side of the world you're on and which climate you're on, but somehow April through October means something. And uh, so my birthday being at the end of March, you know, it's just like a couple days and then it's April rock and roll. And so I want to ask you, man, are you, are you approaching this with the same zeal? Uh, well, there's that word, zeal, zealot. Oh, y'all know where I'm going with this. Are you approaching your world with the same zeal as you did when you first got in the business? And I don't, I don't care if you're young, old, whatever. I don't care if this is your first year, second year. Are you approaching life? Are you approaching what's coming up this spring with the same zeal? With the same extraordinary, exceptional, brilliant, I wanna be in this, this is what I do. I'm not about the horse shit. I'm about the great shit. Are you, is that what you're doing? Cause let me tell you something, if you have any doubts, if you wonder why you're doing this, if you think maybe you're in the wrong time in the wrong place, guess what? You are. And if you can't look around the room and find the unhappy person, guess what? That means you're the unhappy person. 
sorry to get all Tony Robbins on you here, but let me tell you something. If you haven't got it right now, man, if you're just dreading what's coming up, can I just encourage you to sit down and just think, reach out to somebody that you um, trust, do something to invigorate yourself. Find that zeal. Find that. And I know for me, I I had to change some things. I, I wasn't feeling the zeal and I had to change some stuff. And that's how it works, you know? All right, so end of rant. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a very big Dave Wilbur rant. Listen, uh, I'm going to be out with my guest, Armin Suni. Armin, the most listened to guest I've ever had. He's going to be here. We had a great conversation and I can't wait to turn you on to it. The views, opinions, and general insanity expressed during this podcast are those of Dave Wilbur and his guests. Do not try this at home. The most listened to episode of the Turfgrass Zealot Project since we started some 30 episodes ago uh, was my episode with Armin Suni. And Armin is here today. Well, I mean, how does that make you feel that you're the most listened to episode that I've ever done? I mean, is that just, you go, okay, yeah, sure. That's the way it should be. Or, uh, you know, no, I, I, I look at it as something very encouraging since quite often my views along with yours are, are not typically conventional. <laughs> really? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah. the fact the, the fact that people listened to it and enjoyed whatever we, I had to say, we had to say, I think it's very refreshing and it gives me great hope. For the industry as a whole. Right. I think that's true. I think it's still an industry of, of, uh, of some open minds out there. Right. And, uh, that's a good thing. So, uh, okay. So I have a list of, um, I have a list of questions that I kept from things that people have asked me over the course of the last year, year and a half or so, uh, about you, about our last episode and stuff. So you ready for that? Let's break the ice with that. Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. So question number one is, Armin, what is it exactly that you do? <laughs> this is verbatim question from somebody. I, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to be when I grow up. Okay. Okay. I like it, that. It, it's, it's really been a wonderful experience going through. Like my, my problem was as a young man that I hit my career goals at a very early age. Yeah. And I said, what, what's left? What's next? What's left? It, it was, it was a troubling time for me to try to understand what would be the next move. Uh -huh. I, I, I got bored. And I'm not good when I'm bored. Right. Uh, I was struggling a little bit. So I, I don't know what's next. I'm really enjoying what I'm doing right now with Kaplan, Kieber and Wallace doing the searches mm -hmm. too. It, really hits my core because part of what we love about this business, and I, I, I've talked to so many great superintendents, managers, pros, but what so many of us love about this business is creating our teams and developing talent uh, in-house and yeah. fostering them, mentoring them. So what I'm doing now really feels good, Dave. It feels right. So I, uh, 
for the, certainly for the foreseeable future. You know, I'm getting old now. I'll be 60 soon. I'll be wow. 60 uh, another month. That's, so that's, that's unbelievable. I can see riding this. <laughs> right? Yeah. I can see riding this out into the sunset. I, I still do some designs. Oakland, I still do a little bit of work that way. We don't really chase work because we're different. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. make sense for a lot of people to engage us. Right. Because we're very different. So, so that's, that's going on. And, you know, I have other interests as well, but I don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up or what <laughs> I, what I, what I do. It's, it's all been experienced there. There hasn't been a whole lot of planning. I, I can tell you that uh-huh. uh, as to where I was going to be and what I was going to do. I thought the real estate side of things was very interesting. Right. Yeah. But, Dave, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what I, what I do other than I enjoy it. <laughs> right. We decided, my wife and I, Christy and I talked about it, that'll be 15 years ago, maybe longer, about just doing things that, that were fun for me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it's, it's, and it's, I think it's been about 95% that way. Okay. It's never going to work out perfectly that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But sure. really just you know, enjoying every bit of it, and it's been that way. So yeah, that's okay. about it, Dave. I, I, and that's what I do. I'm not sure if that answered the it's question a, or not, but that's a, as close as I can get at this point. It's a completely vague answer, but we're going to get to some, <laughs> we're going to get to some of it. But the, I think the gem in there I've, is I've got a, you're doing what you want to do. That's the thing, right? Yeah, and you know, I've got a I've got a book I started that's golf course centric novel. That uh, at some point, now that I said it out loud on the air, yeah. I'll have to actually finish <laughs> it. Just, just looking at pages, right? Yeah, right, right, right. so. Uh, you know, I'm only a couple chapters into it, so I'll have to finish that at some point. All right. So question number that, two. That's about it. Question I, number two dovetails ahead, into I this. I want to take up. You know, is, is are you a go- do you own a golf course? I own part of a golf course <laughs> along with a, an, old, an old friend of mine, uh-huh. uh, Ken Limes. Uh, it's a golf course where I live. Right. Uh, Country Club of Woodmore. We have a, we have a, Kenny's the GM there. Kenny and I worked at Cherry Hills together, 84 and 85. And he retired from Columbine as the head pro. Okay. And yeah. this golf course, it's interesting. It's in uh, a great old golf course. We have, it was a press Maxwell. You can see some of his father shapers was still around. We have four or five green complexes. There's good as anything on the planet, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a nice golf course. We have a small, very efficient clubhouse. Got indoor swimming, outdoor swimming, uh, indoor tennis courts. It's a mile from my house, door to door. Yeah. And the funny, we've owned it for about two years with a bunch of oil guys. Okay. And the funny part is that uh, Joe Vincent and I consulted there in 1985 <laughs> and told them not not to spend any money on swimming, tennis, or clubhouse. Fix the golf course. <laughs> so you know what they did? They built indoor swimming, indoor cool. tennis, <laughs> right. uh, and went broke. Went broke five times. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, but it's fun, and we have a great superintendent there, Colin Vandersloot, who's a magician. Yeah. First time in my life, Dave, that I've ever you know said to a superintendent, "Isn't it about time to water?" And he answered, "I think we have another day." <laughs> so there you go. There is now that's yeah. a pro. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's yeah. a pro. He's a keeper, and uh, I think we'll have to move him on to something far better. 
than our little club here before too long. He, he's yeah. going to be a super. He is a superstar, but people will come to see that. No, I, I I saw that right away the first day I met him. <laughs> it's like this guy's, yeah. you know, he's going to be intimidating one day, right? So, you know, if he isn't yeah, already, he, he's just smart as can be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a green, big green thumb. Yeah. yeah, and a great thumb, exactly. Okay, so that that answers the the ownership question. Okay, here's here's the last one. All right, there were a few more, but this is, I think I want to keep it down to the, so I'm going to take you back to the 85 PGA Championship at Cherry Hills, okay? Got, mm-hmm. your, got your mind wired to that. Did you really roll those greens with a walking or, or a hand roller, or was that just a myth? Oh, no, no, we, we just, we had a weight tray that we uh, put on the mowers, and we probably put, I guess it's 50, 60 pounds of uh, bricks or concrete blocks on there, whatever it was, I forget. Okay. And we, and on Saturday, you know, the PGA of America wanted the green to 10, which was a joke. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. There's great stories about that. I won't go into all of them. I probably get sued at some point. Right. For that. But, <laughs> yeah. Careful. Um, so, careful. <laughs> So I, I gave him 10 and a half the first couple of days and yeah, they were shooting lights out. So yeah, uh, Richie Valentine was there. Uh, Teddy Horton was there. Alonzi was there. Joe Dewich was there. Mm-hmm. The guys are all busting me a little bit because we knew the greens had to be about 11 or so. Cherry's got some slope on some, you know, yeah, thick yeah. green and there's a couple others that, that have some real slope on them. Yeah. You can't get much faster than 11. So then the next day I was kind of a little bit ticked off at the scores and, them not listening to my experience. You know, we actually had the golf course set up easier for that than we did for the member guest. So uh, the next day I decided we're going to roll some greens. Okay. I told them that on a Friday night. I told them that on a Friday night. I don't think they believed me. Okay. And so we put some, we had these attachments made because we used them and we put some weight on there. And after the guys double mode, I think we double rolled with those and eh, it only puts, you put eight inches on them, Dave, not yeah. much more. Less but what four. happened was yeah. that the wind was the wind was blowing, the humidity was down, the temperatures were up. So the greens got nice and firm. You know that, that, that nice thunk sound they make on firm greens? You bet. And the ball bounces nice and high. Yeah, we had that action going on. But, so that was pretty good. Uh, that's about it. But I chained a big uh, cast iron roller to the front of the uh, golf shop, right in front of the golf shop, so everybody saw the roller and freaked out. And, you know, once you have players thinking about something other than just their swing or their stroke, uh-huh. um, you know, and the pressures of a major, obviously. All right, wait a minute. Um, Let's go back. It was interesting. So, yeah. so you really did chain that roller to the. I mean, I always heard to a tree by the clubhouse, but you chained it up somewhere. Yeah, it was in, right from the golf shop. Invisible, <laughs> very visible spot, right? So that was a real story. Yeah, and it, it wasn't. A, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a roller we used, but it, it just made the statement. And I got that. I got that from Richie Valentine because we did that at the '81 Open at Marion. We had these old tennis court rollers that we'd gotten from Philly Cricket Club. Yeah, yep. or from Marion Cricket Club rather. Right. And we chained, we positioned one at the exit point of every green, so when they walked through the gallery ropes, they had to almost step around these things. And I got that little thing from Richie because obviously, you know, when golf is such a mental game, yeah. as, you know, my, as uh, 
my friend Richard Zokel will, will certainly uh, attest to. But it's interesting that it, it caused a big uproar, and it really wasn't a big deal. It was the weather more than anything. It yeah. changed the golf course. It was That's, high 80s, low 90s, humidity. I think it hit single digits. We hadn't put any water on the greens in a couple of days, and they were fine. They were pretty bulletproof. So uh, not a big deal, really. I was working on a golf course growing uh, a few hours south, and it was record heat during the 85 PGA Championship. I remember it well because we were struggling, you know, trying to, you know, trying to seed stuff and get it going. And it was like, can it get any hotter? I mean, you know, for the area, it just was hard. And uh, yeah, it was, per- it was perfect weather for a championship. Yeah. But for a, yeah, for an existing golf course, it's like, you know, really good. Right. Yeah. And, uh, I was working for Mike Kozak and Mike went to the tournament and he came back saying how good the golf course was and you know, what a magician you were. But I, I always heard that story, you know, about the rolling of the greens and chaining that roller up and stuff, the roller that you didn't even use. That's just, that's, that's funny. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I was, you know, I was young. I was what, I was what, 27. You know, I was still, yeah. you know, uh, thought the world was mine. You know, I, I hadn't really grown up yet at that point. Maybe I still haven't. But you know, <laughs> I really, thing really is, what's changed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what we all come to discover is we just get older. We don't grow up. Yeah, yeah. But I think the other thing I, that was probably much more impressive than what we did at greens, because that wasn't much different than what the members played was the fairways. Cause the whole year we cut fairways under a quarter of an inch and the fairways, Miller tell, Ed Miller tells me that they stimped at seven. I don't think they were seven. I think they're only high sixes. <laughs> but, uh, but we cut the fairways that, that height all year. So it wasn't like we did anything special for the tournament. That wasn't other than grow some rough. Yeah. No. <laughs> That's good stuff, man. I mean, it was just, you know, yeah. the, just good stories that, you know, I think anybody who's ever done a tournament ever, you know, has some behind the scenes stuff that they, you know, can't tell. And then there's a few things that they get to tell. And, you know, so <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? There's those yeah, stories yeah. you cannot tell. Yeah. <laughs> the unedited version is very interesting as well, but uh, we'll leave that. Yeah, for, uh, private leave that be right. Exactly. Yeah. Good enough, man. Okay. Well, that's, that's, uh, you know, for those of you who, who are try- still trying to figure out who Armin Suni is, um, and what he does, there's there's a little bit more <laughs> info for you, but it's you know it's a it's a fluid thing. I can tell you that, and uh, you know that's a good thing. Okay, well let's let's talk about um, let's talk about searches and stuff, because um, now you've got a bunch of you know both general manager and golf course superintendent searches under your belt, and um, what's uh, what's the current trend line today as far as job possibilities and the job market and that stuff. Can you put some insight into that? Sure, Dave. I think one of the things that, that I see that is just so critical is that, and we see it on golf courses when we go around and clubs when we go around, mm-hmm. is when the managers, whether it's the general manager, clubhouse manager, golf course superintendent, golf professional, where they don't quite understand what the membership really wants or think that they're solely steering the ship. Mm. And I think it's interesting to me to see those that get it, that, that get 
all of the above. And we run into, a, 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 obviously, a smaller percentage that are that good that really get the whole package and understand everything. Mm-hmm. So what we see on golf courses is superintendents that focus on, you know, can we rebuild stuff? Can we reconstruct things? Uh, master plans and all those things are good but what they really need to focus on first and foremost is the best presentation on a daily basis that they can put on the ground right and how to do that so so that's that's one of the things that that we see the other thing david uh, i don't think we've chatted about this or maybe we have but uh, there's a severe shortage of golf course superintendents that will occur here in the next five six seven years I don't think we'll make eight years. Mm-hmm. There was nobody going to school for a while. Mm-hmm. We've all transitioned to to seasonal crews, not hiring high school and college kids as much. And that, that was our pipeline. That's where all, all that young talent came from. Right. That's where we came from. Right? That's right. That's and right. so we're seeing much less of that. So we, these young superintendents that are in their 30s right now, five years from now are going to be in high demand, the great ones. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of great ones. Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to be in high demand. It, it's it's going to be a, a very changing market. And it's going to be great for them. So I'm excited for all of them in that regard. We're seeing right now golf professionals, that market's still holding up. Still mm-hmm. have a lot of talent there. GMs, GMs have not been as prolific at producing future leaders as superintendents and pros have been. I see. Yeah. And I think that's something they need to work on. So we're reaching out into other markets, as we always do, for new general managers, uh-huh. uh, golf professionals that are making that transition, superintendents that are making that transition. Sure. So we're seeing a, a lot of a lot of interest that way, and it's expanded our market. We're looking at the hospitality market as well, mm-hmm. looking at the hotel and resort world mm-hmm. uh, to look for those skills and traits. Well, it's but it's interesting that you should say that exciting. because, uh, you know, at a lot of the great clubs, I mean, you don't really like, you know, there's, there's the superintendent and the assistant superintendent and, you know, maybe a few assistant superintendents, right? It's, it's rare that I've ever been introduced to the assistant general manager. You know what I'm saying? Like, I've never seen the two IC kind yeah. of thing on the general manager side, maybe introduced to the food and beverage director or, you know, some things like that, right? or the, you know, the head of the house, so to speak. But uh, yeah, it's not really in that culture, is it, to, to bring somebody along as a second in charge, right? Well, at, at the, at those leaders, those top leaders in the industry, uh-huh. they're doing it. Those GMs, those they're doing chief it somehow. operating officers, are do, they're doing it. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's just, it's not as pervasive as it is with supers and pros that always have uh, multiples in the pipeline coming up. That's what I was going to say. And yeah. with the GMs, we may see we may see one or two. We never see much more than that. Right. So I think that's something that they're all cognizant of uh, at this point, and they'll be working on that. And I certainly talk to a lot of folks about it. Yeah. You know, Dave, one of the other things I, I talk with superintendents about is that, and I was guilty of this. I thought we did such a great job training our people coming up through the ranks. Interns, you'd pick off the cherry pick the interns and bring them in as irrigation techs or assistants, depending on where they were at and what your needs were. Yeah. yeah. But 
I think I was wrong, and I think a lot of people in the industry are wrong, in that if we're doing such a good job developing talent in-house, when we have an opening, we owe it to our employer. We owe it to the club mm-hmm. to put that position out to the marketplace. Right. Let our people that have all the advantages compete against the marketplace, and maybe we'll find better people for our club. Their money, after all. Right. Maybe we'll maybe we'll learn something that we need to improve upon with our training and our programs. So I think that's something that I'm hopefully opening up guys' eyes to, is that letting when you have positions open, let your people compete against the marketplace to un, to see if you can do better for your club and to see if you can get better at what you're doing training wise. Right. I think that's important. The other thing. Interesting. The other thing that I. I think superintendents need to do at the bigger clubs that can afford it, mind you, is to look at two career tracks for assistant superintendents. Mm-hmm. One, having the, the permanent assistant, and then have that educational flow-through development assistant mm-hmm. that, is, that is in for a couple, three, four years, five years now at this point, but that's going to change. Sure. Looking for a superintendent's job. I think it's probably in the club's best interest to have that longtime assistant superintendent in place along with a career track. Mm-hmm. And mind you, you can only do that at clubs with the bigger budgets. I understand that. Sure. But I, I think that we probably, a lot of us that consider ourselves progressive, probably missed that boat. And, and it's what we were doing wasn't necessarily in the best interest of so the, the club, club long term. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yes. And I think I've had some people speak to me over the years. You know, there's always that guy that will follow me to the car, right? Follow me to the rental car, you know, to have a conversation. And I've had a few guys follow me to the car and say, man, I don't know if I want to be a superintendent, but I love what I'm doing right now. You know, what's my future look like? Like, you know, I like being the guy behind the scenes. I like keeping the crew moving i you know i love all that stuff i don't want to go to the green committee meeting you know i don't want to do budgets and um i think in the past i kind of i don't know that i gave that that much credit you know i kind of said well you know kind of here's how the business works you know but i'm thinking that maybe that was a mistake you know what i mean that that we we should have i I definitely think that it was a mistake for me yeah and i you know i was just going to bring up hank right I mean, you know who I'm talking about. Right? Yeah, he's the one. <laughs> you know who? So, yeah. so for those of you that don't know, I mean, there was a there was a guy at at Cherry Hills who was there, you know, a really long time, who quote unquote, I mean, under you, quote unquote, he was officially the assistant superintendent, right? But he yes, had been through how, how how many golf course superintendents did he work for before you? A few, right? I think five. Yeah. Yeah, and. <laughs> And you know, you know who brought that to my attention? It, it didn't register at the time, uh-huh. uh, but it was Nick Hackstock. Okay, who, member know, there. A part, a, a yep. part a develop, yeah, yep. and a, a developer partner in Martis Camp and Mahatma, and yeah. you know, very successful guy, a mentor. Yeah, to me, yeah, yeah, really. absolutely. Yeah. And so Nick said, when I first got to Cherry Hills, he took one look at me, and he took one look at the existing assistant Hank, who was. You know, a, a big fella, and he said, that guy's not going to last long with this kid. And 
And he said, it always, he said it, always, it always surprised me that that you kept them. I said, well, yeah, I kept them because he was smart. <laughs> he was the human as built. He, he knew everything. Right? <laughs> yeah, he didn't forget anything. Yeah, yeah. And he, he, he bought on, he bought into, not only did he buy into the cultural changes regarding irrigation, mm-hmm. going from irrigating every night to irrigating, you know, every three or four days, whatever uh-huh. it, it was in the, the summer. He remembered the days of quick couplers when that's what they did. Right. So right. it didn't take it didn't take a lot of buy-in for him to get this this concept, and then we brought Ed Miller in as the assistant, other assistant, mm-hmm. and those two coexisted very well together, and it, it was a great environment. And looking back, that's when I should have figured out the permanent assistant role made a lot of sense. Yeah, I, yeah. I did not figure it out at that time. Yeah. Well, yeah, and again, over the years, I've bumped into a few of those guys, you know, that have been somewhere a really long time, through several different <laughs> regime changes, if you will. And, uh, you start to talk to them and you start to realize that, uh, yeah, he may look like the man at the bus stop, you know, but he is the human as built and he is the human, you know, the human history book and man, there's some value to that. Right. And you know, the older staff members on the crew kind of get the guy and they get along and that can help. I mean, there's a lot of value to, to all that. I'm, I'm sad our industry didn't embrace, you know, the, the, uh, the role of that assistant superintendent as a, you know, as a career point and, you know, saying to everybody, well, you have to become a golf course superintendent no matter what, or you're not valuable, you know, bad thing, bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I remember having a conversation. I remember having a conversation with Dr. Deutsch when I was in, after I got out of school and we became friends. And I said, Joe, I said, you know, in those years when I went to school, they're getting, you know, 130 applicants for 30 spots, 35 yeah, yeah. spots. Yeah, really tough to so, get in. Yeah. So he could really, ch- yeah, he could really cherry pick. And in my estimation, that you know, there was the top third of the class was pretty good, and after that, it fell off pretty quickly. And I, I was visiting with him, and I said, Joe, I said, well, why do you, why do you do that? I, I said, there's so many qualified guys, and he said, the charge of our program, and at that time it was called a short program at Penn State, Uh the charge of our program was to develop superintendents for the state of Pennsylvania. Uh He said, so not not everybody can be a hard charger, you know, going to go to the top clubs, because we need to fill all of the clubs, not just that upper tier. Right. He goes, so so we select people that, that will that will fall into the different market segments of superintendent. Wow. And it was, wow. I got it then. It was like, yeah. Wow. I mean, that, that he could restrain, he could restrain himself and, and select that way it was pretty impressive. No kidding. I mean, that's pretty brilliant, you know, really? I mean, not to mention yeah, I, doing I don't think job. I ever, sh- I don't think I ever shared that. I don't, I don't think I ever shared that with anybody without with Joe's, uh, how he did that. Because if you were just looking from the outside, it would seem like the, maybe the candidate pool for the program wasn't that good, but it was exceptional. But he only took, he took pieces of each segment and, and put them into classes. That's really interesting, you know, because um, Dr. Butler at Colorado State, Jackie Butler, you know, I guess said a similar kind of thing to me just before he retired. Um, I, he said it in his own way, which is kind of like, Hey, I can't produce, you know, top 10 golf course superintendents only out of this program. Right. Um, 
And, and Ross yeah. Kirk, Ross Kirkhab and I were talking about that, how when he was at Colorado state, you know, everybody would, you know, a whole bunch of the guys were golf oriented and he was like, I don't know. I worked on a golf course, but I, I see a lot of grass out there and his 30 years with the Broncos kind of proves, you know, that like, <laughs> I mean, I would say Ross had a pretty successful run, um, you know, <laughs> working for the Broncos and, and, and. You know, pretty later, successful, yeah. Later, looking over Mile High Stadium and all that. Yes, I mean, you know, like you know, now consulting for the for the he, for the NFL. I mean, he you know, followed, the, he followed Steve Whiting, didn't he? He did. Well, you know how what it was is is Ross was working for the Broncos even when Steve was at uh, was at Mile High Stadium. Do you know what I'm Mile saying? Mile High. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, but but Ross worked for the he was in charge of the practice facility first up. You know in the gnarly part of town. I don't know if you ever saw that, but it was right. just like, <laughs> it was gnarly. You know, they had a little indoor facility and they had an outdoor pitch and it was, <laughs> you know, it was kind of, you know, it was the days of Lyle Alzado and Randy Gratishar and all those kind of, you know, hoodlum type players. And, uh, you know, then they built their big facility, you know, their, their, you know, really wonderful practice facility. And, uh, you know, down in the Southern part of town, you know, with, sand-based fields and all that stuff, you know, <laughs> and it was, right. I but Ross did it. I mean, the thing was, is that, is that, you know, I think somehow in his mind, Jackie knew that it, not everybody needed to, you know, that there were plenty of places to go grow grass. Um, yeah. You know, the municipal courses around Colorado, things like that. I mean, he could, he could help students get those, you know, get that work. So, you know, he talked about it sometimes. Um, he probably wasn't as dynamic as Joe was you know, about, about the thought process, but I'm, I'm sure that was in his head. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting stuff. All right. Well, listen, let's, uh, let's get to a part of the conversation that I think a lot of people expect us to have Armin, you know, and it's something that you and I talk about a lot just, you know, on the side when we have our catch up moments, but, uh, um, you know, gonna, gonna possibly ruffle some feathers here and I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting older and I don't care about feather ruffling as much as I used to. Um, you know, I think I posted something not long ago after my last speaking gig, you know, I dressed the way I wanted to dress and said what I wanted to say. And it felt really good. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I wore my lucky hat, right? Uh, so let's talk about sand based. That, that, that is a goofy hat, but I like it. Dave. Oh, come on, man. It's a great hat. <laughs> I mean, look, you know, you know, as you get older, there has to be something to make you say to people, look, I'm still, I'm still me, you know? So, you know, I like my bamboo glasses in my, in my bamboo hat, man. But, uh, so let's talk about sand-based systems. Let's, let's go. Let's, let's get to it. People want us to talk yeah. about this, Armin, and, uh, you know, I'm tired of dancing around it. You and I have. T spoken about this topic as much as we've talked about anything else ever. Um, you know, going yeah. clear back to when I first met you and, um, you know, and a, and a simple question you asked me, which is, uh, you know, at, at my first superintendent's job, which is, you said, you know, why aren't we were rebuilding a big piece of the golf course and you asked me why we weren't rebuilding the greens, you know? And I said, cause they're good and they don't need to be rebuilt, <laughs> you know, old push up greens. And they that were awesome. Answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why, why would we yeah. do that? <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's pretty funny, Dave. Uh, you know, I grew up on push up greens and, 
you know, heavy soil fairways. Yeah. And this, this movement to sand as the cure, the answer to all of our turf problems is almost right. You know, it's pretty close. I, I think we're, we're missing something. When, when we do things in golf course maintenance, let's look at irrigation first. Yeah. What should we do with irrigation? <laughs> do we replace what we lost every day or 70% of it? Because we know ET is a bogus number. Like, I can say that out loud. Mm-hmm. If you irrigated 100% of ET, you'll need a kayak to play golf. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so that's yeah. a politically correct number to show how much deficit water we're doing and how much we're saving. That, that, that is, it's undeniable. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So let's look at the irrigation. Irrigation, my thought was, and as a kid, I watched what happened when it rained. Mm-hmm. And then I started thinking, can we irrigate it like rainfall? And can we let it dry out really good sometimes? Yeah, yeah. And then water it heavy sometimes. And, you know, even to the point of uh, looking at, you know, chaos theory and irrigation, I got off that pretty quick. Right. But <laughs> I, I actually considered, considered, right? considered that. That's how far off the grid I am. But yeah, I believe it. What, it also got me thinking about, about sand based systems. And what I came to learn over the years, and trust me, it's taken years to learn. I bought into things as well. Mm-hmm. When I was at Penn State, I, I had some good discussions with, with Dr. Watsky, with Tom Watsky, mm-hmm. about straight sand top dressing on greens. This was 19, in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And I thought that we should probably take our time getting sandier and sandier. Uh, with our top dressing so that there wasn't this stark interface. Right. I still don't think that's wrong, by the way. Yeah, so, I agree. Uh, but he convinced me. And, and and then I went to work for Richie and Marion, and Richie said, 1980, he said, ah, we're going to make our top dressing for the year. And I said, okay. Yeah. I don't know what he was talking about. And he said, yeah, he goes, why don't you see what you can find for organic matter? He goes, I know I can get a load of good topsoil. He goes, and uh, we'll, we'll make an 811 mix. We had a Royer shredder and a screener. Yeah. But, okay. I said, you know, Richie, uh, Dr. Watsky's talking a lot about straight sand top dressing. He said, yeah, yeah, I know a lot of people are doing that. He said, but, you know, my father used this mix before me. <laughs> this was not. Yeah. His father had been a construction foreman working for William Flynn. Right. He goes, and, and before my father used it, before my father used it, Flynn used it. So he said, for 70 years, it's worked pretty well. I started laughing. Yeah, okay, I get it. Right. <laughs> and and that's, what, that's, what, that's what we top dressed with. And then I got off on my own, and I, I started doing the sand top dressing thing. And God, you took a push-up green and gave it some good sand top dressing. I'll tell you what, you had an inch and a half of sand on there. Those things were bulletproof. Oh, no, right. Exactly. You, you, you had... Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. had the best of both worlds. You had you, you had roots and nutrient retention in the soil, and you had the compaction resistance and a little bit of breathing yeah. in that top inch, inch and a half. Yeah, I mean things were pretty good. Yeah. So if a little's good, a lot must be better. Right. If if and that inch and a half's good, let's get it to four. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then we then we discovered that once you had four or five inches, a couple of things happened. One is that 
your subsurface, your old push-up green, couldn't take a whole lot of water. So when you got rain, mm -hmm. that top four or five inches filled up with water, all that macro pore space filled with water and it had no place to go. So, so now we had to put internal drainage in. Right. We're, we're punching deep holes, we're putting right. internal drainage in, we're doing all of, the, all of those things. Uh, you know, it's kind of like we're the government, we're here to help. Right? <laughs> Every time you hear that, you, you should cringe. Right, you yeah. know. Yeah. We're, we're, the we're, we're the agronomists, we're here to help. Right. More sand, more sand. <laughs> yeah. So, the sand. Oh, bring on the tines, bring on the pipe, you know, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> and while we've gotten ourselves into a pickle where we need to do that now, but, and I, we're seeing it on fairways now. When, mm -hmm. when I go see people, I say, well, is there a right amount of sand on fairways? And they kind of look at me. And I said, do you want to core aerate into your, into your sand that you're putting down and you know, create some kind of a sandy, loamy soil, something that's, you know, got still got some body to it. And, and I'm seeing golf courses now that are either plated or they're mm -hmm. top-dressed to the point where they need internal drainage right. in these things. <laughs> yeah. And the other well, thing is... nowhere for the water to go. At, yeah. Yeah. yeah as, as we all know, when you grow grass on a sterile medium, which is what sand is, it is hydroponics, it doesn't support a whole lot of biological life. Right. And right. so those good microbes uh, aren't there to chew up your thatch. So now you have fairways that need as much coeration as teas do. Mm -hmm. uh, and the fertility runs out of them. You blink your eye, you get a little rain, boom, it's gone. Right. And so now we're, we're on the treadmill now. We're yeah. running, but we're not getting anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, we, did this to, we did this to firm up golf courses, and all of a sudden I'm going to sand-capped golf courses that have an inch and a half of thatch on them, and the ball's plugging and bouncing backwards or not advancing much. Thump, right? And so <laughs> what have we done? Yeah, yeah. horrible, yeah. horrible. Well, I, I mean, I can, you know, I can relate a few things. Like I remember when I first started consulting, you know, it seemed like a lot of people wanted to call me to show me their problem kids you know, whatever their problem kid was. Right. And a lot of times the problem sure. kid was the two greens that they rebuilt three or four years before that, you know, at a course that had some pretty nice push-up greens, but they had to rebuild a couple of greens for whatever reason, you know, moving the clubhouse or, you know, the road changed, <laughs> yeah, whatever it is. Right. And, um, uh, and they build these two or three, you know, sand-based greens and they just, they're nothing like the other greens on the golf course and everybody hates them. So let's call yet another consultant yeah. to come in and help, you know, and my first question fix is like, fix. why did you do this? Why'd you do this? Didn't you know you were going to have, you know, completely different surfaces, completely different everything. Why, why'd you do this? Why didn't you figure out how to they, recreate your personal other... greens? Well, and the, the other problem is that almost without fail, those one or two greens that got rebuilt, it was an environmental problem, not a soil subsurface right, problem. Right, 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 right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, there so was... They rebuilt these greens, and they didn't give them a fair chance, really. No. In that, you know, even, even, if, even if they built them, rebuilt them with great in, internal drainage and a, a, a high-tech push-up, even if they put that there, they still wouldn't be successful because the problem was 
The environment. Yeah, a bunch in the of shade, the air doesn't move. A bunch uh, of trees, a bunch of whatever. Yeah, whatever it was, right? Roof, yeah, everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Didn't take care of the of the real. So they problem. don't give them a fair chance. Yeah, yep. let alone they pick a, a flawed construction method. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, you know, <laughs> those were the calls that I got right to go look at that stuff, and then. You know, the other thing that was going on is that in architecture, you know, everybody wanted to talk about sand capping. You know, like anything new that was going to get right. built that was, uh, you know, at a certain level, oh, we got to sand cap this because that's going <laughs> to that's gonna take away all the evils. And, uh, you know, I was in the game of testing sands, right? So people are sending me sands that, yeah. you know, Armin, you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't use this sand in your kid's sandbox. You know what I'm saying? You would <laughs> just horrible, horrible products, right? That were, you know, who knows what off of a crusher run type stuff. But this is what we can afford because we got to get eighty thousand tons of it, you know, to cap the golf course with. So this is what we can afford. And it's like, no, you can't use this. Like it's, you know, it's dirty. It's it's sized all wrong. It's you know everything is wrong here, and. um so, you know, I, I, we, we came up with the moisture release curve testing, right? To show people that a lot of times these sands that they thought that they were going to cap at six inches with would not really necessarily release moisture. In other words, the, the perch water table existed or, you, yeah. you know, you had to flush the toilet and that didn't happen until about 18 inches or something. Right. And so I'm, right. so I'm at the meeting, you know, trying to explain to everybody that, no, you, if you use this. You know, it's this particular sand. If you use it at six inches, what you have is a waterbed. You know, you have a moving mattress. <laughs> it's never going to let go of this water. It's never going to do that. And man, it was, those were hard. I mean, I, you know, you know, we built models and plexiglass. We, <laughs> you know, we piled up sand outside the clubhouse to show guys. I mean, anything to, to illustrate the fact that there is a, you know, there is a moisture release curve to every sand. And, um, I don't know, man, it just, it, it, you know, so, you're, so your sand piles, your sand piles tell you that quite often. Right. <laughs> exactly. And that's, I mean, just the practical things you'd say, look at the top of the sand pile is dry and the, and the bottom is sitting in a lake. I mean, come on, you know, let's talk about this a little bit, but, uh, but you know, from an architectural spec writing perspective, it was. You know, here's the acceptable material. You can do this with six or eight inches and you'll be good to go. And I'm like, no, don't do yeah, that. Think... No. <laughs> and now we look at some of those well, golf courses, that, you know, you... a decade later, two decades later, and they're troublesome. They're just troublesome. Right? Yeah. I was on, I was on one not long ago that, that had done all the approaches with a foot of sand and they were just, uh, you know, they played worse than they did before they got capped. Right. Uh, and and this, is, this is not uncommon. Uh, we see it all the time. Now, the other thing is, if we're going to mimic nature, right, wouldn't we go look at 100-year-old sandy grass areas and look how they developed over the years? Yeah. And how they work? And, and, and I love looking at that because... You go and you look at these old golf courses that have grass grown on them 100 plus or some, some places two, 200 plus years Yeah. Uh, when you go to Europe and, and you see what the top of the sandy soils look like. 
mm-hmm. real high in uh, real high in humus. Right. Uh, yeah. Not a lot. Not a lot of thatch. Uh, and so you start thinking, how do, how would we recreate something that took two hundred years to, to develop? <laughs> and so you start thinking at, at a little different, a higher plane, and, and start saying, okay, let's let's look at what we need to include in these sands to make them perform. And you have to remember when when you were in those coastal environments where they were spreading algae on golf courses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, they, they were doing all kinds of things to get that grass. Eb Steininger at Pine Valley, I remember Eb telling me. Richie used to take me over to see Eb over Pine Valley. Sure. And I remember Eb telling us stories about putting, bringing up seaweed from the Jersey Shore and spreading it on the places where he couldn't grow grass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how grass would develop. And I mean, it just tells you that straight sand isn't the answer. We've known that for a couple hundred years now. Right. Um, so yeah, we you, have to, we have to start thinking about this. If you look at any of those old school guys who were doing that kind of stuff, who were making their own stuff in the barn or whatever, or what, you know, it was, it was some, you know, some, what they would call friable sand, straight sand or whatever, mixed with this, mixed with that, you know, organic source, this organic source, you, you know, you know what I'm saying? Walter Woods told me stories about getting really high quality, what he called five manure, you know, <laughs> like, you know, good you know, looking right. for the best manure in Fife and then adding that to some seaweed and all that sort of stuff and then adding that to the sand. And there was never any, never once any conversation about straight sand unless you didn't want stuff to grow. You know, right. yeah, they would have bunkers or, you know, a face or whatever that just, you know, they didn't want to deal with it. Right. So let's just put some crappy material all over it and then it won't grow grass, you know, ballast. Right. You know, like squeegee sand, that kind of stuff. And, well, uh, well, Dave, I'm yeah. I'm seeing a I'm seeing a, a remarkable trend now, with superintendents adding some topsoil to their their green mix, right? And yeah, uh, and I, I I think that's wonderful. They just need to get rid of the gravel blanket. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, the perched water table and the and the toilet that you often can't yeah. flush is a bad you know is a bad combination, right? I mean that's yeah. just hot, really well, hard. I, I remember, yeah, I, I remember. I remember talking to Joe Deutsch when he came out with the A's and the G's. And I said, Joe, I said, uh, you've now made it so that you have to pick your cultivar before you pick your construction method and materials. Right. And, yep. and he said, what do you mean? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, if you're going to go with a, with a perched water table, I call it a false water table because that's really what it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, then... And you're going to top dress with the same material you build the green out of. You need to use a finer sand, and you might have to have 18, 20 inches, whatever. But you're going to need more of it to be able to top dress with the same stuff you built the green out of. Uh-huh. And, and he, said, he said, you know, you may be right. I said, yeah, I may be right. <laughs> um, but as soon as, you get, as soon as you get rid of the pea gravel and a glazed subsurface, um, you can use all kinds of materials. Right. There's all kinds of choices. And Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can you can use an eight one one mix and build greens out of them. They'll perform remarkably well. So yeah. there, there's a lot of possibilities, but we just want to at this point, Dave, try to stop some folks from making those mistakes in fairways because you know thirty acres of mistakes is uh, a little tougher to deal with. Yeah, well, there again, I think for a lot of people, it's an economic factor, isn't it? It's like this is what we can afford to buy, and often that isn't the deal. You know, it's, the, it's the wrong choice. And then, 
and then six inches of it built up after t over time is really the wrong choice. And, uh, you know, yeah. people will say, well, we can deep time, we can do all this sort of stuff. And it's like, well, wait a minute. I thought we were doing this to minimize, minimalize, minimize, I guess is the right word. You know, some of the other things that we have to do, right? You know, I mean, instead of putting in a whole bunch of drainage and stuff and, and hoping the water will get to a catch basin, you know, we're going to, we're going to use some sand here. Right. And then all of a sudden that's not working. And everybody says, what'd you do? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So yeah. I, I agree. I and, mean, it's 30 acres of mistake. Yeah. yeah. And, and the other thing was, that I always told people, you know, uh, criminals run faster than cops. <laughs> and what? When, when you look at, when you look at soils, the, the bad, the bad guys in soils, oh, the, the sure, bad yeah, microbes. Yeah. yeah. Established very quickly, yeah. And and the good guys typically, without intervention, take a couple three years to sort themselves out and catch up. You know, and it's, we can jumpstart that. We can jumpstart that. But I'll tell you something. And I was talking to some guys about this um, at one of the conferences I spoke about, where in a hallway conversation with five or six guys standing around me. You know, um, which you know I love, right? <laughs> It's like, good stuff. you know, those are good moments, but, uh, but I was trying to explain to them that the, that the biology, you know, the, that the friction where weather, water and biology that try to make little rocks into soil, you know, cause sand is little rocks, isn't it? Uh, it's tiny rocks yeah, yeah. is a whole different bioset than the biology that we need to grow, you know, to grow prairie land grass or, or, you know, woodland grass, right? I mean that that those bacteria yeah. that that bacteria and fungi that we need in a perfect system, <clears throat> it's not going to be there when the job is to break rocks, <laughs> you know. And those guys will eat the little guys for for fuel of their own before they ever get to do their job. So what, you know, what are we doing there? And uh, you know, two or three of the guys that were standing in front of me when I said that, you could see the lights go on. And they're like, oh, you know. Cause, cause they're talking to me about eco this and bio that as far as spraying, you know, and inoculating that system. Right. And it's like, yeah, good luck. <laughs> you know, it takes a bigger, yeah. it takes yeah. a bigger gun than that. And, uh, well, and, and yeah. you can't, it's hard to do in hydroponics. Right. And, Absolutely. And th that's what sand, that's what sand based systems are. They're hydroponics, pure and simple. So one of the guys says to me, he says, Hey, I've been, I'm in an organic fertilizer program using all organics on my greens and the organic matter on the, on my soil test, you know, the humus hasn't risen. So what's there? I must be doing the wrong thing. I had to do something else. And I'm like, well, did you stop using fungicides? Did you add any other carbon to this, you know, to the system besides, you know, what you got in the jug? And it was like, no, I kept spraying and, you know, and I'm like, okay, then, you know, you can't win, <laughs> you know, you can't win. And, uh, that's, that's may not lose ground. Yeah, it's just hydroponics. Like you say, it's just, you know, it's just, right. you know, nutrient in, nutrient out, you know, kind of thing, which I guess is what Micah and all these guys are talking about, about, about MLSN, you know, is, is hydroponic work, you know? So, yeah. Same thing all the guys in Denver right. who are growing it, it, weed it, are talking about. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, yeah, the, the high power crops usually figure things out. So uh, I think, you know, it's interesting when you talk about that, because I remember 
I remember uh, really looking at this when uh, at Shadow Creek, we were selling some land. We had extra land. We were into another 18 holes, and I was going to sell some land to some guys who had uh, a tomato operation. Right. Oh, I remember those guys going so flying tomatoes. And, yeah. 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 Yep. yep. And so I, so I went and, and hung out with those guys for a while to learn a little bit what they did. And I came back realizing that we were all idiots. I think are. if I remember right, I think they had 27, maybe 29 different nutrients going into their hydroponic tomatoes. Here's mm-hmm. guys that guys that make their money by the sweetness of their fruit and the yield. Right. And they're using 27, 29 different things. And I was a progressive guy. I might have been using 11. Three, yeah. four. Other than, you know. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. And, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so at, at that point, I realized that, you know, every time you, you put a hole in the green, you should be dragging some, some kelp meal in it, some ocean stuff, something just to get all those things. And I, I love asking young and old superintendents for that matter, how much stromium does a grass plant need? <laughs> and they all look at me blankly. Like, I don't know. I go, I go, nobody knows, but I'll bet it needs some. It needs something or it wouldn't exist in nature, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and, that, that, and that's why you put the kelp meal out there. That's why you use those things. Because Mother Nature can figure it out. And God forbid, Dave, that we go more than 3% organic matter in, in the sand <laughs> because it's the end of the world, as we all know. Right. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, I think, I think, yeah, I think when we evaluate organic matter in sand-based systems that we should probably be paying attention to what the subsurface is. Uh, if it's a push-up green, it really doesn't matter. Um, and if, if it's not, we should start discriminating between humus and undigested right. organic matter. And, and, since they and do sticks, very different things. And sticks and twigs. Exactly. Yeah. And again, yeah. sticks and twigs need different biology for them to break down. You know, the the, right. the bio community that exists when you have a real humus-oriented scene is a much different deal than the one that's there for digestion and breakdown. You know, much different. And the plant doesn't win. Yeah. You know, the microbes are going to eat at the table first, and they're going to want that plant, you know, as as food source. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so humus, humus, humus is our friend. Batch is not. Right. Right. And that's a hard one to get people to to embrace. So if you're listening, you yeah, hear what Armin I, just I, said. Yeah, yeah I, I I use the uh, I, I use the the cholesterol model. Remember when all cholesterol was bad? Oh sure. And then yeah. we found out there was good. Then we found out there was good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, and the ratio mattered. Um, and thatch, organic matter is about the same. You know, there's plenty of times when you have a thatchy situation that a little bit of compost will make things much better very quickly. And it goes against all convention. Why would you add more organic when you have an organic problem? Well, yeah, our problem is that we got the wrong kind of organic. Mm. It's not breaking down. And, and we see this, in, especially see it in Sandy's situation, yeah. where there's no micro, not enough microbial life. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we've, I think we've, uh, we've gone after the sand-based system. Is, that's it, that's is there it. more to say? Yeah. There more to say, you know. You know what? No, I'm, just that once we remove the false water table, everything works. Right. And so you have a lot of flexibility. There's going to be some people listening. And they're going to go, "All oh, these guys are, you know, bashing USJ greens." And it's like, listen, it's not about the letters. 
<laughs> you know, we got to look at the agronomy first and see what's, you know, what works and what doesn't work. And, uh, yeah, I've been on some beautiful yeah. USJ greens and then I've walked two steps off of a beautiful USJ green into the, you know, into a schlaggy mess, <laughs> you know, and that's been yeah. part of the problem too. So there's nothing wrong with drainage <laughs> on any system you're using drainage. It's right. just fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. More is better. Absolutely. More is better. All right. So that's the sand base thing. Uh, what else do people expect you and I to talk about Armin? Come on, take a guess. We got just a few minutes left, so. Dave, Dave I, I haven't a clue. Uh, they want us I'm to exhausted. I'm exhausted. <laughs> they want to talk about water. Okay. And I, again, okay. I know I know we beat this one to death. You know, in a few situations, I beat it to death all the time. Uh, you know, I spoke at a conference re- recently, and I put up a picture of a monkey. You know, in the water, and I'm like, "Don't be a water monkey." And I was explaining to the guys that in all of my years of consulting, I never, ever have ever written the words, please water more. (laughs) And that drew a huge laugh. And I was like, why are you laughing? Like, it's not, I don't know, maybe the monkey picture had something to do with it, but it's like, you know, and I'm like, don't be an irrigation monkey. And, you know, by the way, I've never, ever told anybody to water more. Always told people to water less. And, um. You know, I thought that all this water shortage in the West and, and in other places, you know, in this droughty kind of scene would, would get people to back off a little bit. But in a lot of cases, what they've done is they've taken some acres of irrigation out, you know, like, oh, yeah, it's a good idea. Let's not, let's not irrigate the rough over by the houses and stuff. But the stuff that they are irrigating, they're just hammering. <laughs> oh, like, what? What are you doing? You know? So, I don't know. Yeah, Dave. And, you know, maybe this dates me. I'm sure it does. But when you grew up with quick couplers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you learned that you didn't have to water every night. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was a pretty good lesson. And, and you learned that some spots needed a little bit more. Some needed a little less. And I, I think that's probably the sophisticated irrigation systems. Are, are great with great managers and with average managers, they're, they're average, nothing really changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what's, what's changed and when we start talking about irrigation management, I think we have a great new tool that is being greatly misused. Yeah. So a soil moisture meter is, is a, just a, it's a wonderful tool. It's a wonderful tool. But yeah. If, if you're, yeah, if you're growing grass in the northern climes, uh, growing bent and poa, Mm-hmm. And you're running around with a two inch two inch probe in May. The only thing I can guarantee you is you'll have two inches or less in roots really quick. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. People need people need to understand that when you have six or eight inches of root mass, that what's in the top two inches being a little bit dry isn't a factor for irrigation. That's right. Uh, and so I, I think that's something that we're losing a little bit. That, that tool in the hands of a, of a great irrigation manager, a great superintendent that gets it, uh, is a wonderful tool. Sure. In, in the hands of uh, average managers, I, I think it can often lead to less root mass more quickly. Yeah. And, and that's a problem. So I think that people need to still understand, look at the cup cutter when you're cutting. You, you need to look at that. You, you need to look at where your roots are, where the moisture is. and the one that everybody misses, David, and we've seen it a million times, is 
on native, on native soils, heavier soils, that frequent irrigation, how many times have we seen it that the top is sopping wet and two, inch, two or three inches sure. down it's bone dry? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then, then it rains, and then it rains, and all of a sudden, uh, the dry down, the magical dry down starts happening. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. It, and it begins. And two days into it, the golf course is playing really good. Now you might have a little pocket here or there that needs, actually needs some drainage. But, and what you've done is you've reestablished the hydraulic conductivity in the soil. Mm-hmm. You haven't left left a dry band between two moist bands. That's right. And 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 irrigation wise, there, there's always a couple of things that we looked at, and that was the connectivity of that moisture band, so that you had the internal pool of higher tension soils and gravity pulling the moisture down through the soil and sucking atmospheric gases in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and that I think is one of every textbook in the world said deep and frequent, but they never explained it. Yeah, it's 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 more about the the, the hydro, hydraulic conductivity, making sure that you've connected those so that downward pool happens consistently, and that's really one of the problems with USGA greens, a perched water table, sure. is that you have to you have to put an inch and a half or two inches in to drop the bottom out, so the thing will suck air down into the green. Right, and so the um, only adhesion cohesion you have is between the particles, not necessarily drawing. At a certain point, the drawdown stops, and then nothing yes. happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. stops breathing. Sure. Yeah. And 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 these other other methods of construction, which you know, I'm talking about sandy systems with drainage. Uh, the only day they don't breathe is the day they get rained on heavily or irrigated heavily. Yeah. After that, they breathe every day. Right. As as the moisture comes goes through and pulls atmospheric gases in. So yeah. and I, then I the, think that from an irrigation the, standpoint. It's never been explained well. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And I, I guess, I don't know. I was, I was working on a talk the other day and I, you know, I only had so much time, you know, for this particular thing. And I just, I wanted to get into the, how water moves in the soil thing, those old slides, you know, from Washington state. And I just didn't have enough time to do that and the rest of the stuff I had to do. And I was thinking to myself, geez, what a mistake, you know, I'm, uh, I'm uh, trying to build the wall from the top here, you know. I, next time I'm not going to do about that. Dave, yeah. Think about great irrigation philosophies and techniques with these new tools we have. Yeah, it, it really al- allows the, uh, allows people to maximize this. And because you know, mine was always kind of guesswork. It right. Was, I was trying to figure out, okay, how much right. water is it going to take to make the connection, and yeah. if you have if you have salts at all what you're going to have to do to push salts. And yeah, you had to kind of factor it all in. And it was quite frankly, a lot of good, uh, intuitive guesswork. It was green thumb guesswork. Uh, and, and, and you tried to learn. Yeah. And then I yeah. remember us trying to quantify it. Like I remember being in several superintendent's offices, drying down, weighing soil and drying it down in the microwave, you know, and trying to figure out what our moisture percentages were <laughs> that we liked on greens and stuff and trying to quantify that you know, is it 13% that we like, or is it 7%, you know, what's the move here? You know, that kind of stuff. And it was like, or the magic. Geez, yeah. what are we going to do? You know, have guys bringing in samples and drying them in the microwave from the field. I mean, this is, you know, this is not, you know, and the moisture meter comes along and really solves that a lot, you know, if it's used correctly. So yeah. that's true. All right. We're getting yeah. to the end, if, end of our time. Let's, uh, let's jump yeah. off at of irrigation. Let's talk about future. Let's do a little futurism, Armin. 
So uh, okay. I'm going to throw out some topics and let's just see your response to it. Okay. Uh, robotic mowing. Yeah, I, I think it's tremendous. Um, you know, I, I visited the engineer at the cadet last year, and I said, what you need to do is put a mower facing the other direction on the other side. Yeah. So you don't have to turn. Right, so it doesn't turn. Mm-hmm. You know, so you, you, drop, you drop the one side, go across, shift a little, kind of like you're rolling the green. The other uh-huh. unit drops, it's pointing the other direction. All of a sudden, our productivity has increased, and the wear and tear around greens is uh, significantly reduced. Right. Right. Okay. I think it's a wonderful technology. I also think, Dave, and you and I have talked about this, that we need to start figuring out how not to apply growth regulators or how to break the growth regulation out around cleanup passes, collars, and yep. approaches and short grass areas. Right. Uh, and, you know, we can do that. There are ways of doing that. What? Armin, and interrupt the market for turning boards? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> well, <laughs> And I, I, I'm kidding. I tell young I tell young superintendents that you know there I never heard of a turning board until about five years after uh, growth relators started being commonly used on green. So yeah. You know, hmm, let yeah. me think about this one. Let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah, exactly. That's true. Okay, uh, let's keep going with futurism. Um, the golf ball. A lot of talk about the golf ball right now. Uh, I've been trying to get Peter Kessler on the podcast. I've been trying to get some people outside of growing grass to talk about the golf ball. But what do you think? Yeah. I mean, you've been involved in architecture, so this is a really good question for you. Yeah. Well, well, first of all, let's make sure that we get Zoko on the show because he has some real, you know, I would uh, love that. thoughts about it that I think you'd find it entertaining. Good. Yes. So, uh, you know, my, my thought is that I have no problem with the two-tiered system. Uh, these are the best guys in the world. Uh, playing golf, and, and if, if we had uh, dumber balls for them, uh, I'm okay with that. Um, if we if we had less bounce on club faces, I'm okay with that for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the general market should play the most advanced stuff it can play so that this crazy game, this challenging game, uh, is more playable for us humans. Right. Uh, I have no problem with two different sets of uh, equipment for that. Right. And the example is in, in college baseball, they use metal bats, but not in the, not in major league. Right. Uh, how hard is that? You know? So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I get that. Uh, okay. Let's see. I'm just looking at my list here and seeing what's interesting. So we got the golf ball. We got that, um, futurism type stuff. Armin, what's coming in the I, future? Oh, I, I, what? Go for it. Well, I think I, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting to, to find out that golf is not as highly ranked as an item to why people join clubs now. Ah, interesting. I, yeah. I think, I think it's very interesting. And from a golf course superintendent standpoint, that they need to really get their arms around this and try to understand what those issues are. And how they can help, and we can we can look at uh, what they just did at Course Two at Medina, mm-hmm. what Reese Jones and, and Curtis Tyrell did there, yeah, and Steve Weiser. I mean, what they did there was just exceptional. They created probably the most playable golf course of the three courses there at Medina. Uh-huh. 
it's it's remarkable. It's funny. I, I sent Reese a little note and said that we're typically talking with our saccharine terms about sympathetic uh, restoration, right? And that I, I felt I felt that Medina was an unapologetic restoration. Yeah, and it was Bendelow on steroids. Yeah, yeah. And and I I, I go there to the property. You know, Dope did one, and Reese did three. Mm-hmm. And I go to course two, and I'm like, well, I love, I love it. I like it better than the other two. Yeah. And, you know, I always like different things, so take that for what it's worth. But but the personality there, the playability of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the good players are going to have plenty of challenges. And the lesser players are going to have plenty of opportunities. Right. And, and I think that's good. And I think superintendents have a role in making sure when all these renovations get done that they are have the ability that these redesigns have the ability to be very playable, immensely playable for average and lesser golfers, mm-hmm. but to offer challenges, mental and physical, to the better players. Right. Absolutely. And I think superintendents can can help steer that boat, whether it's behind the scenes or up front. They can help steer that, and they they need to be part of the solution for this. Right. 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 Well, I said to somebody once, golf professionals as well. Golf professionals golf as well. Golf professionals exactly. as well, and GMs as well. They should all be holding the hands with the same mission going forward. And I think that's so, like, you see that happen in the UK. I mean, I, I use the example with people a lot about Gullen, you know, Gullen Golf Links. Um, I, if, I was, mm-hmm. if I was an old dude and I, you know, suddenly won the lottery and I could live wherever I wanted and play golf every day, you know, that was my mission, right? Um. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I don't think that would ever be my mission, but let's just say it was. I, I'd live in Gullen, right? In in you know in East Lothian. I would play Gullen number one once a month, you know, just to remind myself that I'm okay. Um, I'd play Gullen number three. Yeah, and I'd play Gullen, you know, seventy two hundred yards up and down the hill, tough stuff, right? Uh, I'd play, I'd play uh, Gullen number three as much as I could. 5,600 yards of just great fun, you know, in the wind, out of the wind, spectacular. Right. And, uh, and every once in a while, my buddy who, who is richer than me would take me out to Muirfield and we'd have around, you know, two, three times a year. Right. This would be my world, but I would be pissed if I couldn't play going number three as much as possible. And I would also be pissed if they made me play number one while it's a great golf course. It's just hard. You know, it's long and it's windy and, um, and I, you know, I just, at a certain point, I think I would give up and I would just start building model airplanes. But if I could play going number three every day, you know, it'd be fun to be exercising. You'd have a good game with your buddies. Um, nobody gets hurt. You know, their shoulders don't hurt. <laughs> their back doesn't hurt. You know what I mean? Right. And and this is the kind of stuff that I think clubs have to look at, you know, and I, and I think that's, you know, that's why I love to see like at Bally Neal, them doing you know, those, those seven holes inside of the 18 and things like that, because, you know, you've beat your brains out playing the 18. There's still a little bit of daylight left. Kind of like to go out and hit it a little bit more. Don't want to just hit the putting green. Great. There's a, there's a little whiskey loop for you. You know, that kind of stuff. I mean, I just, you know, multi-course facilities have got to look better, you know, at the whole thing. And I go clear back to my days at Salsa Berman when the par three course was jammed all the time. And people had a lot of fun out there. You know, they just enjoyed themselves. Nine par threes. Fun. Right? Um, yeah. And I, you know, 
we're seeing that's how you get people excited about the game. Yeah. yeah. The other thing, Dave, I yeah. don't know. I'm trying to figure out is what Top Golf is going to add to us. Uh, mm. I, I, keep, I keep looking for, for them to expand into public facility driving ranges with their technology as, as a uh, pull in to, to go into their facilities. I think there's something there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what it is or how it's going to work, but there, there's potential there to grow our game. Uh, but it's going to have to be a multi-level, not just what it is now. Right, absolutely. Uh, so that's going to be interesting to see how that, sh- that see how that shakes out. Yeah. All right, I got one more one more thing to ask you about uh, yeah. the, the movement to get rid of T markers. Uh, well, we've got that movement, and we've also got the movement to get rid of collars. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. Uh, I think you're always going to need T markers for uh, events. So everybody's playing from the same spot for uh, an event. I get that. Yeah. I, but from yeah. daily for daily play kind yeah. of thing, what do uh, we have T markers? For? Yeah, I, I think it, it's interesting because I, I think that golfers are creatures of habit. Let, let's talk about your typical guy. <laughs> Not typical. You're a good golfer. You're a good golfer who's you know low teens or high single digits handicap, and that golfer typically looks at the back tee and moves one tee up. Right. If they're playing someplace new. Right. 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 Uh, that's going to be their sweet their their sweet spot. I think that you would have people uh, the indiscriminate wear. I, I think would be. An, I love I love the freedom of it. I, I, quite yeah. frankly. I, I, I just too. don't know how how it works. Yeah, I love the freedom. I, I think it should. Well, let's face it. When I used to play a lot, when I took people out to play, I'd get a feel for how they played, and I'd work the tee so that they could have fun. Right. Absolutely. We played a lot of golf where yeah, we didn't play. This, where we, didn't, we didn't play for the yeah. tea, from the tee markers. We, did, you know, just being insiders. Yeah. It's like it's my golf course. We can do whatever we want. We're not playing right. for these tee markers today. We're playing yeah. from that set of or, tees or this. Or whoever won the whole, whoever won the whole got to pick the got tee. to pick the next set of tees. That's really common. Exactly. Yeah. Sure. And yeah. then of course You'll we love had, it. I mean, we had our cross country golf expeditions, which was always fun. Yeah. You know, on the tee off on the fifth. And we hole. all had a we all had a we all had our beer loops. Right. 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 Yeah. All that stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that but, was that was yeah, the back five at Marion was about as good as it got. I was going to say, I mean, you were at some places where that could be really fun, you know? And I, and I used to tell people yeah. all the time, I mean, like when Ed was there and, and Brad, and then, you know, later with Mark Machat and stuff, you know, I told people that I've, I've played seven, eight, nine, ten, and 18 at Pebble beach. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know, two dozen times. Uh, I've played the whole course once. <laughs> you know, cause like, that's where I want to be. Like, let's go out to the cliffs here. You know, play the cliffs of doom, hit it in. Right. Let's go. Let's go. Let's, and then where's the beer? You know, like, oh God, it was so good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just before sunset coming up the 18th hole. Nice. I mean, why would well, I, be, you know, why we would I beat spoiled. my brains out? Yes. Yes, of course. We were spoiled in that we had the ability to do that. Those special things at special places, which... I don't see why we should not let the public be spoiled. Well, that's let what I'm members s- be spoiled as well. That's what I'm saying. And is, offer those opportunities. 
situation. Yeah, is yeah. we were really taking advantage of our situation. Um, you know, a lot of times. But uh um but I you know, I remember, you know, one of the places I worked at, you know, my assistant and I would go out and play a little three hole thing, you know, right by the holes by the shop. You know, just to just to right. go walk a little bit, you know, just put the bag on your shoulder and just go, you know, blow off some steam, <laughs> if you will. So anyway. All right. Well, hey, man, that's a bunch well, of time. And I, 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 yeah, the other what? thing I love, Dave, and I'm, I'm sure we're going long, but is less clubs in the bag. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think less, less clubs in the bag, all of a sudden people start understanding that ball can actually bounce and roll and that you have to hit different kinds of shots as opposed to I'm going to put my 157 swing on this club. Mm-hmm. I know I hit it 157. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have the 157 club in your bag and you're between clubs, you, you, you know what you have to do. You take the next club up and you, you choke down on a little bit, you punch it a little bit. Yeah. I, I think that can be a lot of fun for golfers to, to really learn and embrace. And you do it through, you know, uh, three, four, five club matches yeah. and, and get people focused on having fun. Tom, Tom Mead turned me on to that uh we played golf at the apache stronghold and he turns up mm-hmm. you know with a little quiver and five or six clubs in it right and i've got my you know my giant ping bag with all the shit in the world <laughs> you know and he just right. looks at me and he goes you gotta learn to travel buddy <laughs> you know like you know i travel with my odds or my evens and you know maybe maybe this one would you know Jim Urbina, the same thing. He had this ping three wood that was his driver and everything. You know, he could hit that thing like a seven iron or he could hit it like a, you know, like a one iron. <laughs> you know? But yeah, me right. just looked at me. He goes, you gotta learn to travel. <laughs> you know, that's not how you do this. And, uh, and he was right. You know, he was really right. It's like, yeah, how long has it been since I've touched that one club? You know, I don't, I don't hit a four iron. Not really. You know, so why is it in my bag? Um, yeah, I love that stuff. I think golf could be better for those things. All right, anything else that's on your mind before we go? I think that's it, Dave. I enjoyed this session with you today. <laughs> we always have a good time. Well, listen, Armin, I appreciate you. I appreciate your friendship and your mentorship, and and uh, uh, I hope you have a great new year. You know, you and and Christy and the gang. And uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to 2018. I, I see a lot of potential. I'm glad we're all doing what we're doing. We're all doing different stuff. You know, we're doing some unique things. Um, you know, I'm doing a few things outside of golf that are, that are challenging and fun and, uh, keeping my brain engaged. Cause I'm like you, I get bored. And then when I get bored, things go wrong. You know? All right, Dave. All right, buddy. Happy new year. All right. Happy new year. I'll talk to hey, you oh, soon. Dave, Dave. What? Yes. You, should, you should you should remind everybody to listen to the episode where I interviewed you. Oh yeah, that uh, yeah, one of the early episodes that was uh, brutal, man. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was fun. It was fun for you. It was really uncomfortable for me. Um, but but thank you. I will. We will do that. I'll put links to that in the description. Armin Sunni, wow, <laughs> man, can he and I have some conversations? I love it. I just love it. I'm thankful for Armin. I'm thankful for his friendship and uh, for the fact that he wanted to join me here and uh, just spend some time. I think that's really cool. 
Hey, I'm Dave Wilbur, and this is the Turf Guy Zealot Project, and I appreciate you. Appreciate you listening. Uh, we're only on TurfNet. We're only on TurfNet Radio. Uh, that's where I'm staying. That's where I'm keeping this. So uh, there it is. Uh, next episode, look forward to another great guest, some more insanity. And uh, until then, you may continue your life of killing grass. Take care.